All right, I just hit record, so we're recording now. Hey, everyone, welcome back. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening and watching whatever it is you're doing. Uh, unless you're doing that while you're doing like murder or something, don't, not appreciative of that. But the fact that you're listening, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, so here again with Kevin from the Engineering Podcast, uh, and we're going to do another kind of conversation like we did last time. So, and if you haven't checked out that last one, I would highly recommend it. Uh, we talk, talked about the kind of the job description of government. Uh, we kind of left some, some cords dangling of some questions unanswered and stuff. So <clears throat> stuff we'll hopefully get into into the future, I think. So it's a really robust and interesting topic. Um, one that there's a myriad of opinions on. So if you haven't listened to that, I'd recommend listening to it. But none of the content of that is necessarily like imperative for understanding this one. Um, so just, just so you know, this isn't like Back to the Future 2, where if you haven't seen the first one, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. I haven't uh, seen so. any of them. All right, so the topic of the podcast just changed <laughs> to why Kevin hasn't why seen am I the here? classic. Yeah, yeah exactly. uh, Robert Zemeckis, uh, I think, did this score, I think, was that, and Steven yeah. Spielberg did them. Anyway, classic film. Something like that. I know of it. Yes. You know of it. No, I've, I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I've never actually seen the thing in the full. Like, I, I think I've seen enough of the first one to piece it together into the full movie, but I've never seen it in its entirety. I do need to sit down and do that. Well, one, it's on Netflix. So you should watch it. And two, what's funny is my yeah. wife and I saw that uh, our local movie theater here is going to be opening back up here in a few weeks. And I was like, oh, that's sweet. I wonder what movies they're going to watch. And she's like, oh, it's a bunch of old stuff, like Dirty Dancing. And I'm like, oh, unless they're showing like Back to the Future or something, I don't want to go. And she's like, that's actually one of the ones they're doing. I'm like, we're going to go watch Back to the Future. <clears throat> so regardless, kind of, so last time we, we did a little bit of prep and we talked about some stuff beforehand and we we're kind of on the same page about what we were talking about. And this time Kevin has graciously agreed to let me just kind of ambush him with some of some things I'm thinking about. So he has no idea what I'm going to ask him about. I probably like, I know it sounds like I'm setting up something super interesting, but it's, it's really probably something. Only, like, interesting he's just going to come out with this line of stats and I'm going to ask yeah. what's your rebuttal, sir. I'm like, oh, I'm exactly. Well, uh, no, I, I really am just kind of wanting to flush some stuff out. And I thought it'd be interesting to capture it kind of in real time. Cause I haven't necessarily articulated all these things in like one, just sitting down and thinking out loud. So as Ed Sheeran would say, just, just thinking out loud. So <laughs> I thought it'd be fun to kind of do that. <clears throat> so it's not like, let's get your reaction to, and then some shocking things. I know I'm setting up something that's really not that super interesting, <laughs> but the first thing, but the one feeds into the other. And so the first thing, well, I wanted to ask you about, okay, because we have to lay a baseline of, of making sure we understand what we're talking about here. So whenever you think about the Overton window, what comes to your mind? Uh, what's acceptable to say in this snapshot in time, basically. Yeah. Culturally, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So the Overton window describes kind of the, what is inside the realm of appropriate or acceptable conversation to talk about. Right. Mm. Um, and that changes throughout time. There are some things that are acceptable. Some things are more unacceptable. Like for example, if we were to start seriously discussing eugenics right now, that would be met with a radically different response than if we were talking about it in like 1920, right? So Absolutely. the Overton window no longer includes a serious conversation about 
well, what do you think about eugenics? Should we maybe start doing some of that? Um, so my next question is, what are your general thoughts on the current Overton window? So I have it. I have something I think about it, but I want to know what your thoughts are first. Mm. <clears throat> well, the Overton window currently is, uh, how do I best describe it? It's kind of like a, a two pane glass, right? So we're talking about a window. It seems like we have an Overton window for one set of people and then an Overton window for another set of people. So we kind of have these two different ideas of what is acceptable and it really depends on certain things. And, and you could easily say, maybe it depends on your skin color. Like if you're black, you can say something that a white person can't. That's not necessarily true. It really depends more on ideology. And this really tells us, I think, where human behavior is driven from. Is it driven from, you know, uh, just the general constraints of human behavior is driven from culture a little bit. So an example of this is, is you can say a certain things, a black person that uh, you can give commentary on, let's say the latest incident, you know, that uh, there is police brutality and it's massively against black people or the black community. You can say that. And then if a black person gives a different commentary, a different set of facts on that same topic, you're met with this, incredible backlash that they'll either try to just cancel you outright or they'll accuse you if you are, you know, black or a person of color, whatever that oral alien term is. Um, they'll, they'll say you're no longer in that group anymore. You're some sort of uncle Tom or something like that. So the Overton window is acceptable for certain ideologies. And then there's a whole separate one for another set of ideologies. So it's kind of um, interesting and I don't really know or try to think back of when this was really Similar, I guess, in the past. You know, we can always say it's separated by classes and, and you know, if you go to certain countries, there's a certain class of people who can say stuff and another class of people who just can't. And normally, it's split by like rich and poor or some sort of economic class. But here, it's split so heavily in ideology that it's actually an interesting question that, you know, we have these two sets of Overton windows and, uh, you know, it gets super confusing when it's acceptable to say something with one group and not acceptable with the other group. So, uh, it's kind of my, my first thought on it. Well, your first thought is, sounds like almost exactly with where the, what I'm thinking about is. I liked how you said the two pains. What I've been thinking about is, is an asymmetry, how there's an asymmetrical relationship between the direction of language. And so I, you said you could hear me earlier, so I'm going to get up and just kind of draw some. We kind of tease this out a little bit. Absolutely. <clears throat> so I, if there's, Oh, previously we would have said there's an Overton window and everything in here is, this is okay. Okay to discuss. I know you said that this shows up as backwards. So I'm actually going to erase that and we're just going to put a check mark. This is good. You can talk about these things. This is reasonable. Okay. And everything out here you can't talk about. And this is as society generally, but as you absolutely correctly pointed out that's not actually the case this is not for everyone this doesn't apply to everyone <clears throat> and so what i would like to posit is that there are two overton windows and not just that so it's not just conversation because is conversation these days really conversation or is it usually because everything is so freaking political is it usually some form of criticism i think obviously there's conversation about some things right but the overton window isn't meant to be something that describes non-controversial -to topics, right? Yeah. Like this is not, how do you feel about the sound of crickets in the summertime? 
you know, it's not controversial yeah. things. Yeah. So I, about, what I'd say about the Overton window is it, it actually describes a set of acceptable behaviors. So you can expand it out more. I, I would throw sure. something like cultural appropriation in there. So like, you know, wearing an inappropriate Halloween costume is now what I would consider outside of the Overton window. Again, someone can wear it from a certain ideology, but then from another ideology, they can't do the same thing. So I would expand the Overton window to more than just conversation, but just acceptable behavior. Sure. So <clears throat> I agree. And so let's say, let's actually tease out a couple different ones then. All right. Because mm -hmm. uh, I'm not really wanting to talk about behavior, but you're not wrong. So and here, and one of the reasons why I bring this up is because I've heard a lot of people in like the conservative libertarian circle say, well, the Overton window has just shrunk so much. It's just shrunk so much. You know, you can't say anything, da, 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 da. And I think that's not true. And I think that it's way more complicated than that in a, in a thing that'll feed a future thing. So, okay. So you'd say for behaviors, acceptable behaviors, um, hey, an A is a letter that is the same front and back. So this is acceptable behaviors. So it's shrunk really small, right? Like you can't even wear a sombrero. Can't say I like tacos or, you know, or anything like that. Um, or it's cultural appropriation. So we can say that's You cannot say tacos in a Mexican accent. That's what you can't do. <laughs> I just thought of like the office whenever they're like throwing like the Mexican party and he yeah. puts like the little thing above lemonade. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Okay. <clears throat> so the Overton window has shrunk for behaviors. I think that's right. I think that's right generally. Um, obviously, there are exceptions, and we see hypocrisy all over the place. But we can we'll agree on that, right? So for behaviors, smaller. Okay, now let's think about it in terms of speech. And again, I want to think about it in terms of the direction of criticisms, okay? And what you are allowed. So let's try to hone in on what you're allowed to say about people you disagree with. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, or just what type of criticisms or ideas you're allowed or not allowed to bring up generally. All right. Can you still hear me? Okay. Yep. You're fine. Okay. So the first one I think is right. Whenever conservatives and libertarians say, I just can't say anything. I can't say, are the police systemically racist? I don't know. Like, because I, I, I just can't think I get called racist. So the first window will say is acceptable criticism in the direction of the left. Okay. Is that, is that make sense? If you're aiming your criticism in the direction of a left of a left leaning narrative, it's very, very small. In fact, this is probably way too big. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious. For people and listening actually, to the audio version of the podcast, he's drawing a very okay. small square on a whiteboard. Yes, a very small score. And actually, let's tease this out a little further, okay? Like I said, I'm, this is all real-time stream of consciousness. What would you put in that window? What is a viable and non-controversial, like won't be met with hate, criticism that you could make in the direction of the left? I can make one that is you are not woke enough but that still is a criticism that heads in that direction. So if you were to break it down into a criticism that would pull them back from not going further left or toward the center or to the right, certainly you can't do it toward the right, but even pulling it toward the center, that seems to be falling outside the Overton window. So it seems like whatever you can put in there, as long as it pushes them further left, it seems like it might be acceptable. Depending That's on exactly right. <clears throat> That's good. Have you heard James Lindsay talk about that before? 
probably. I've heard a he lot does, of James Lindsay. He has this really interesting thing that he says about how what makes critical theory so dangerous is that any criticisms of it have to push it further to the left. So the only criticisms it will listen to don't like actually make it stronger and make it worse. And so, and so that's exactly what you're saying. So the criticisms that would go in the, against any like left-leaning narratives are very small and, unless they're pushing it further to the left. I think that's exactly right. Okay. Now, here's the other one. If you were to say, how big is the window of criticisms against anything, like, against anything that isn't in the, the left-wing narrative? Are, oh, there, it's, it's, <clears throat> are there boundaries? Nearing, nearing infinite. There's still some things, you know, that are outside of it. But just to, to give an example of what is now in it, the, the use of the terms racism and Nazi, which, I mean, to call someone a Nazi without merit was uh, probably frowned upon, to say the least, uh, closer to when the term was, you know, popularized during World War II. Um, but now, you know, that's in the Overton window. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, you need to go more extreme than Nazi to go outside of it now it's it's nearing infinite yeah i think so that's why i put infinity symbol right and an arrow to the left and to the right mm -hmm. like they can infinitely criticize anything or anyone that opposes you know a set of narratives and let's be a little specific here so there's this thing that i, I call flow far left orthodoxy and it would be anything on like the general progressive type leftist talking points about how fundamentally evil everything is and you know the white privilege systemic racism like gender is a social construct um what else am i missing uh the you know the internalized misogyny and bigotry uh what else gender roles i mean yeah and yeah anything like that so Anything, and, and I'm not saying anything negative about those things. I'm just saying those are the, those are the general things that are pushed or are discussed. Like, oh, um, any type of like, gu like gun control stuff. So if you say, well, I don't know if the gun statistics really back up banning AR-15s, most are committed with handguns. Like, it, like that's, that'd be in that same. <clears throat> so what we're saying is any opposition to that, there is no limit. And to get even more specific, and this is the part that I think matters and kind of goes into the next part that I want your take on is it's not just criticism, but it, and you, and you touched on this with the Nazi, but is there really any limit to how much you can castigate someone or the types of thing like character attacks you can say about someone that you disagree with, as long as that is aimed like in, in the direction of someone who's, you know, unenlightened, who is not part mm -hmm. of the, far left orthodoxy yes can you not think of anything that we can yeah and it's not that's not woke or whatever mm -hmm. can you think of of any anything that would be unacceptable to say about let's say donald trump or ben shapiro or even someone like dave rubin or someone on the left uh like uh um the factual feminist i'm gonna draw a blank on her name uh yeah i know who you're talking about Anyway, Susan, I, I, I can't remember. Anyway, but like, or Heather McDonald or Larry Elder, can you think of anything that would be off limits for someone to say about those people that, that, the, that the people on their own side would go, whoa, dude, that's a little far. Can you think of anything? Yeah. I'm being serious. 
Yeah, I mean, devil's advocate, I would say you could probably say some words to Larry Elder that would repulse the left, but it wouldn't necessarily sure. be, you know, in uh, pushing him further right or left. It would just be, you know, language that's not acceptable uh, by certain. And I'm sure there actually could be certain people, you know, on the, the left, uh, I would, like Ta-Nehisi Coates comes to mind, that probably could say things like that, that wouldn't, no one even bat an eyelash at him. Um, yep. So to, to answer your question fully, no, I don't really think there is any uh, attack and character that would really go far enough to to say, because the worst thing you could strike against someone like a Ben Shapiro is saying he's a bad father or something like that. But there are people who truly probably believe that they believe he goes home and teaches his kids the same thing, you know, he preaches on his show and they consider him evil and a bad parent for that. So I, to answer your question, no, I don't really think there is. I don't think so either. So what do you do where you have an eight? Actually, that's probably not the best place for that. What do you do when you have an asymmetrical, <laughs> asymmetrical relationship between what would be considered acceptable, not just criticisms, but even um, like m malicious type things. So for those of you that can't see on my whiteboard, I drew a very, a, a a line, maybe about a centimeter from the edge of one side. And so on this side, we'll say this is um, non, I'm not even gonna bother writing stuff. This side represents not flow. And everything over here represents flow. I, I know that it's gonna be backwards, but whatever. So, so if it's you're not on, backwards now. It must have been your live stream is backwards. It's fine now. Holla! Yes! Okay. Anyway, so of what these people can say over here is, like, is virtually nothing, really. Mm -hmm. And what this group can say to this group is limitless. So what I wanted to tease out, the first part, is I don't think we spend enough time looking at the social consequences of having an asymmetrical relationship of criticisms um, and, and also of like, even like what you're allowed to say that would, wouldn't even be productive, but just insulting. That what happens when you have an asymmetrical relationship there? So there's a, a book called The Power of Bad and it all, writes all about the negativity effect. And one of the things that he writes about is about how there's a, a positive to negative like ratio. And in my job, I see this with students that we work with. You have to maintain a certain positive to corrective ratio if you want to, you know, you, you think about it as you're making emotional deposits by having positive interactions so that whenever you have to make a criticism or a correction, it does t make a withdrawal. But if you've deposited enough into the relationship, like you're able to make those criticisms and they're well received. Whereas if all anyone receives is just negative, like, what are the ramifications? Well, people get divorced. That's the ramifications um, as one example. Um, so I would like to tease out, if it's okay with you, what are the social and cultural, like, uh, consequences of having this kind of asymmetrical relationship for criticisms? And not just that, but for, like, it's not just criticisms. Like, like I said, the left can say whatever they want about people that don't disagree. And I say people that don't disagree because I'm not talking about a left-right thing. I'm talking about the far left and what they can say about someone like 
Ellen DeGeneres, if she says, be nice to people, what they can say. I mean, they say horrible things about Barack Obama because they don't like Barack Obama. The, um, the far, far left, the ones steering the ship right now for the, the policy and for the ideology. Okay, what, like they can say horrible, like Medium, the writing platform suggested an article to me yesterday, said Donald Trump is a Nazi, full stop. There's no conversation to be had from that. So all I'm saying is, is it, if there's no limit and no bounds on where, not just criticisms, but just the types of things you can say about them, and that only goes in one direction, what do you think are the long-term social consequences that that takes on a, on a country and its social fabric? Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely does. So, so, so let me let me include one anecdote really fast. Sorry, yeah. that kind of gives that'll maybe add a little, flesh this out a little bit. So, there was a like recently on Facebook, there was a, a friend of mine posted something, and it had some stuff in there that um, wasn't necessarily factually accurate. And so, I was pretty clumsy in my initial response, but I was just saying like, look, if you want to. Um, if you want to make the best case possible for your cause, you just want to make sure that you include the best case possible for your cause. And so that's just making sure that there's nothing in there that's going to distract from what you're saying. Um, and so just making sure that everything is accurate and the amount of responses I got, and we see this all the time where if you just say something, you know, pretty, you know, benign um, like that, like you can get, people can say whatever they want about you. And so I, you know, was called a murderer and, you know, a vicious racist and all these other horrible things. And one of the things that I realized is, and this is by like, I was, my friend didn't say this to me, but um, some other people like did. And I'm like, I don't think that it registered. It registers necessarily to them um, at the time or to my friend or anyone else, like the pure vitriol that's in those kinds of answers, because it's baked into the, it's going in the right direction. So you can say you're this, 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 and, and lay out the most horrific character attacks possible on someone. But as long as it is part of a criticism in the, in the right direction, as long as it's aimed in the right direction, I think that people have become numb to that kind of, of just pure vile, like a uh, rhetorical, form like yeah i can just say whatever and i'll read this and like i just don't even read the the vitriol there because i see that it's baked into this thing that i agree with and so i just i assume that's normal and i don't think about how corrosive that is for relationships or society generally so that's what i mean is that's just one example i don't know if that kind of adds a little bit of a of some fleshes it out a little bit but i just wanted your thoughts on that yeah uh, it actually brings up a separate point to mind so i'll, I'll make sure to try to get to it after uh I get my thoughts on the original uh, question you brought up, which is, you know, what, what happens when one side just gains all of this control can fit inside this immense, you know, Overton window and the other side gets nothing to me. It's, it's kind of like uh, a conversation that uh, uh, Jordan Peterson had when he, he was talking about uh, the differences between the right and left in the American context compared to the European. He always said that in the European context, which is why, you know, people, you know, socialism was on the right in the European context is kind of like the default position. So he's trying to kind of bridge a difference there. But he said the responsibility of the right and left in Europe were pretty clear. And this is why they're described this way. The right is meant to build up hierarchies. Hierarchies are not a bad thing. I mean, he's uses a bad word now as a pejorative, but it's really everyone builds a hierarchy implicitly. It's, it always happens. 
it's just, is someone breaking it down and building another one? That's all, all people are trying to do. And really that was the responsibility of the left was to break down hierarchies before they became rigid. And when those hierarchies become rigid, they become corrupt. So that is the responsibility. Typically what we're seeing now is that they busted down the hierarchy so much in the U S that they're reversing it. And now they're building their own hierarchy. And if we don't have a balance to break down that hierarchy, when it becomes rigid and corrupt, that's what will happen on the left. When you That's have this massive window and not allow the right to do anything, you've now built this hierarchy that cannot be demolished. And the reason why the right normally is the one, you know, kind of reinforcing hierarchies is the conservatives naturally to conserve things, right? So to conserve things, you normally conserve some sort of hierarchy. And to me, even though I'm a conservative, I, I really appreciate a very healthy discourse with the left because they keep me honest. You know, if I, if I can just believe whatever I want to believe and I never have pushback, I, I know my beliefs can get corrupt. I know I, that I will go too far on something and I won't get pulled back to reality. So I rely on them to pull me toward the center rather than just running, running you know, to the right you know, infinitely. So that's why, and I've written a little bit about it before, that we need to have a healthy discourse on both sides in order to stay honest. Because in reality, just like everything, there's an extreme on the left and extreme on the right. Although I'm on the right, if we always picked the, the choice that was extreme on the right, we probably would be in a great place right now. And the same thing goes the opposite side because the answer always lies somewhere in the middle. And when you yep. can't get to that answer in the middle, just because it's not even allowed in the Overton window, obviously bad things are going to happen. So that, that's, why I th that's what I would think if, if they're just you know, allowed to infinitely say anything they want and the other side's not, not allowed to say anything at all. And then it gets kind of to your, um, your character attack kind of uh, opinion. You know, I've written before that I think uh, in one of my pieces called The Character Driven Ideology that not only is the current ideology that kind of took hold of the left right now is a character driven ideology, meaning that they will attack character to, you know, the other people are evil. They're not wrong. They're evil. You know, normally as a conservative, I, I believe that yeah. everyone, there's no such thing as an evil person. There's only evil ideas. And if someone gets so corrupted with evil ideas, you know, they can kind of manifest themselves as an evil person. Think Hitler, for example, you know, no one's going to say that he was a good person at heart. The guy obviously had these evil, evil ideas that turned him into an evil person because it, it attacked his brain like a parasite, essentially. And, you know, when you have the, these people who think everyone who opposes them, you know, everyone says maybe not all cops are bad, that, that those people are evil. You know, that, that begins to kind of screw with your brain. And now not only does that ideology say it is okay to attack character, which normally as a conservative, I, I never try to do that at all unless I, I see someone extremely flawed in character and they're, they're being dishonest on purpose. You know, when you get to, to see people as evil like that, it, it demands that you attack their character. Yep. And we have that, we, just, we have an awful discourse. And I think the right response, or the, not the right response, the right wing response to it was Donald Trump. The guy attacks character. The guy calls, you know, women a dog face. I mean, that, that's, that's awful to me. You know, I... I think that behavior is awful but that is the response to what we've been seeing and although it's not right you know a lot of people you know even conservatives like me are like rooting for trump because it's it's like at least he's fighting back you know I, i'm i'm in a couple of different groups that either they love trump or they're they're kind of the the anti-trump conservatives who are huge fans of mitt romney i'm like well mitt romney he he might be a great person might have, have you know a man of very high character but the guy just laid down and, you know, whenever he got the spotlight a little bit on these left wing channels, he just took it and he, he's going all out left wing just to get a little bit of spotlight. And he doesn't realize he's being used for that. So, you know, I don't like the kind of uh, uh, kind of leader or politician who's going to lay down for it. But I also don't love the leader who's just going to use that character attack uh, with with uh, just the purpose of taking down someone else. So, uh, yeah, to, to basically answer your question. Yeah, I think that 
that hierarchy on that side or that that ability or basically non-ability for the right to have any opinion and the left to only have the opinion that'll just build a corrupt system. You I, I, think, I think that's a really interesting juxtaposition that you said there, you know, where Peterson talks about how hierarchies are natural, the right maintains hierarchies and the left finds, you know, where the hierarchy has a propensity for corruption and how right now we do see the left building and, and it has already built. I mean, higher ed is a left-wing hierarchy, like at this point has been for probably close to 40 years. So, I mean, fair enough. But if there isn't that counterbalance, if they have shifted and the right can't like fill the role that the left historically did of like, hey, there's some corruptions in the hierarchy, guys, let's talk about it. Um, when there's that asymmetry of influence on the hierarchy, whether it's for its construction or whether it's for its renovation, then that's, an, that's a problem. So that's a really interesting juxtaposition that you laid out there. So the, the other part is, and this is what I'm, I've been trying to think about because I, I, I really, you know, in my, why I don't talk about Donald Trump video, you know, I talk about like, I think all these problems aren't going anywhere. You know, they were, they preexist them and they'll exist afterwards. And so I think about the general direction of, of our society and our social fabric. And there's, you know, people like Tim Pool and others talking about civil war and everything. And I'm not convinced that that's going to happen because people have too much to lose. Like there's people are too lazy, to be honest, I think for that type of thing right now anyway. But I do think that there's something to be said for a, a permanent uh, or an irreparable split in the population, even if it's just a relational split. So, you know, so for example, I'm talking to someone who's someone I respect and I like a lot and they're talking about how you know, there is a good, like, like the similarities between Donald Trump and Adolf Hitler are so similar. And I hear that and I'm like, that's bananas. Um, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever to me, but I'll, I'll listen. Obviously I didn't say that. Um, but my, my point was, I said, well, first off, if, if you think that's true, then you should probably be doing something about it. Right? Like if you, if you thought actual Hitler was in the white house I mean, I think you have a moral responsibility to do whatever you can to get them out as, as quickly as possible. Um, and I mean, I'm talking like whatever means necessary um, if, if you think that's the case. But if you don't actually think that, if you're not, so if you, do, if you really believe it, you're doing nothing, that's a morally indefensible position. But if you're just saying it, like, so you're doing nothing, well, maybe you're just saying it, you don't actually believe that. Well, if you're just saying you don't actually believe that, that's also a morally indefensible position because what I tried to explain to this person was you're not just talking about the president, you're talking about everyone who supports him. And even though I did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016, I know a lot of people that did. And like a lot of good people, a lot of hardworking, just regular folks who did. And so you're saying that these folks are the type of people who would vote for Adolf Hitler and everything that entails. And so whenever there's, so like we can talk about the, asymmetrical relationship of criticisms but it's not just about those leaders it's about the people who support them and like what you're actually saying about an enormous portion of the population and the gradual erosion that takes place in there being any type of trust or common bond if you're just constantly being told what an awful person you are i mean i know that that's 
something that was part of the 2016 election where people were like, Hillary Clinton talks about the basket of deplorables and how that's what, you know, the, who Trump supporters are and what, a, what a toll that took on, well, one on her viability and, and how outrageous that was for a lot of people. They're like, well, screw you then, man. Like you think I'm deplorable just because I don't agree with you. Now we've had that sentiment expanded to the nth degree and broadcast nonstop from every major media outlet on, on the worst possible levels for the last four years, for the last four years, that idea of, if you don't agree with me, you are deplorable has been like the milieu of what people who don't agree with that narrative has been just existing in. And so like, again, I want to think about like, what are the long-term consequences? Like, how do you have a conversation from that? Like if the starting place, and then I have the part two of what I want to ask about, but, but if the starting place is you support a Nazi, you are a Nazi sympathizer, you are a horrible, bigot, misogynist, whatever thing, like where is the productive conversation that follows afterwards? And, and how, if at all, is it possible to like change that type of rhetorical milieu of where conversations they're not really conversations but where these things are taking place do you see what i'm saying does that kind of make sense yeah like what toll is that going to take on the social fabric if you think about the last four years and going forward yeah yeah i mean there's no perfect answer for that if we knew the answer i think we'd be utilizing it right now but you know when it comes to you know i personally engage with people like that who who are uh spewing vitriol and and you know making this all about character it really depends on who they are. If it's going to be some random person on Twitter, I, I normally just say, not going to engage, uh, have a good day. You know, I kind of peacefully let it go. And hopefully that makes them think it's like, Oh, everyone isn't coming on here with knives out ready for a war. You know, maybe it's just people who actually want to have a conversation Although Twitter is probably not the best place for that. But I can say when doing this with personal friends who have very, very close friends who are, um, you know, people who are, are posting stuff about Donald Trump every day about how, you know, he's, he's doing all these back, backroom deals or you know just benefiting corporations and he really doesn't like people of color and all, all this stuff you know I, I do try to reach out to them and kind of have that conversation it's like man you gotta you can't you can't keep doing this you can't keep pushing it farther and farther that you're going to to say this person's an absolute evil person and a lot of things that i do is bring up you know what happened in the past you know there are people calling president bush a nazi which is insane for us now it's like how how would you ever say that and we know that you know the if, modern left still says yeah. that that is oh, still absolutely. the narrative. Yeah, yeah, he's just like a nicer, there's gradations of Nazi apparently. That's why Ellen no, got in so much that. trouble. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Ellen friends, got, with, yeah. <laughs> friends with him. And, um, you know, and we know whatever happens in 2020, by 2024, whoever is the new uh, Republican nominee, he will be worse than Trump. Doesn't matter who it is. It could be Mother Teresa You think herself. so? Oh, absolutely. So? Well, no, no, it won't be actually worse than Trump. I mean, I don't know how you're really going to gauge that, but to the left, this person will be the new worse than Trump because Trump was worse than Bush. It's just going to keep going up because when you, when you keep putting things at 11, not a scale to 10, you, you got it. You can't go down or now the scale has been revealed that, you know, we can't. Yep. I think I might've paused it. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Brief commercial break. Um, but yeah, so the, I, I really truly believe whoever the guy with the red R next to his name or, or lady with the red R next to her, her name in 2024 will be worse than Trump to the left. 
That is how to the left. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I, gotcha. I'm saying like they're actually going to be like David Duke's going to run around anything. Gotcha, like, that. Gotcha. It can be, like I'm saying, it could be Mother Teresa herself and they will make it worse because when you have yeah. an ideology that base their, base their whole ideology on character, you have to keep turning up the fire. You can't turn it down. There, there is no yep. way. If you turn it down, now you, now you expose your lack of ideas, mostly. <clears throat> So as to how we try to, to get the left to do it, it really, it's a culture thing. You know, if you say there's something bad within a certain culture or subculture, you have to convince that culture to change from within because you cannot force change down their throat. That, that never works. So you have to convince, you have to reach out to these people. If you have friends and family who are, you know, doing posting the, the Trump is Hitler memes every single day, you know, you let them cool off. Maybe you, you give them a good gesture of, of good faith and just say, hey, you know, I'm good friends with you. I don't believe what you're doing. I, I hope that maybe we can talk about this uh, productively at some point. But, you know, I don't, I don't think really what you're doing is healthy for you. And I had to reach out to a friend and do that. It's like, I don't think you're in a good place right now. And maybe this isn't the best way to, to uh, you know, act like you're, you're with a therapist and venting on social media. It's like when you do it on social media, it's like, yeah, you got to remember. And I've been yelled at because I reply to, you know, these, these silly comments. Like, why do you always got to reply? It's like, oh, it's social media. It's not just private media. Just post it to yourself. And, you know, if, if you don't want anyone to respond to it and criticize you, but, you know, there has got to be a way you can reach out to some of these people. And it's probably going to take, you know, an individual by individual. It's going to be hard to, to change it from within the system or within what we call the left now, because it's really hard to tell where is it coming from? You know, you can't blame just Nancy Pelosi. And, and if she were to, to be kicked out of office, you think everything would change. It's not how it's going to work. It's going to, the ideology right. is going to live on, you know, Bernie Sanders is probably not going to run again because he's going to be a little too old by then, but you know, who's going to replace it? It's going to be AOC. It's going to be someone like that. It's going to be someone holding the torch for that ideology that you need to figure out how to best expose the ideology. And we we've exposed it in the past. That's kind of the sad thing. You read Gulag Archipelago and you'll exactly know where that ideology is going to lead you, but you have to find a way to, to educate people. And if we can't do it through the education system, cause it's very difficult. I mean, I, a lot of people right now say it's the worst time to get objective news. To me, it's the best time to get objective news. What you do is you go to a news source, you find the source material within the news source and you read it and you compare it to someone else who wrote on the same thing using the same source material. And now you know the objective facts. It's not that hard. Well, it's, I mean, it's a little bit hard. It takes an extra step to do getting past just reading the, the title of the piece, which is normally how far people get. But, um, you know, it's really going to come down to educating yourself and exposing the bad ideas coming from that side. Cause it's got to change within. It cannot change by, by forcing it down their throat or they're going to accuse you of being a fascist. That is correct. So there's a lot there. I have a whole nother thing about AOC and versus Bernie Sanders. And I think there's an, an enormous difference between those two and it's really scary, but that's a different, a different time. <clears throat> so yeah. To what you're talking about, the let's get let's get specific again because I like what you said and you're right about how the change has to come from within. You know, in if you're going to use like uh, evangelistic circles, so if you were going to say, "Hey, I want to go send a team to proselytize in this country to to go and share share the gospel and try and you know make Christian converts in whatever different country," like it's pretty like well-established that the best way to do that is with creating some indigenous converts and then passing the torch to them. So it's an indigenous thing. Um, so it's not like this is the, the American thing or whatever. Although I think actually South Korea sends out way more missionaries uh, globally than the U S does now, but that's a different thing. But the point is, is it has to be an indigenous kind of thing, but here's a different thing I'd like to look at. I wasn't planning on drawing another, another thing, but 
I think that we specificity matters here because there's a difference between the people I talk to or the people you're talking to about like, hey man, I don't think this is very good for you, right? So we'll say these are the people down here. Can you still hear me? Yep, you're fine. Okay. So we'll say, I'm gonna put a big M here. This is the majority, all right? The majority of folks, all right? That's just the average Joe. And then there's another group here, smaller, okay? But we'll say that this is the um, this is the thought leaders, okay? These are the people who are filtering the rhetoric and the ideas and the policy down to these folks, okay? So like the majority are getting this from the thought leaders. So we could say that's academia, right? We could say that is whoever your favorite news person. So it could be, um, if you're older, it might be Steve Inskeep or Terry Gross on NPR, or it might be Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper or Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson or whatever, okay? Um, but these are the people, and, and then whatever politicians as well, right? So the AOCs, Ted Cruz's, okay? So the thought leaders are the ones really kind of passing down the, what you would say is the ideas, but then also I think like the way that you talk about the things that you talk about, right? So if you're a person who listens to Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro and Dan Crenshaw, or, or, you know, Michael Knowles or whatever, talk about certain things, the way you talk about those things is probably going to somewhat mirror how they talk about those things. And if you're the type of person who watches, gets all your, you know, your now this and your Buzzfeeds and, you know, you watch AOC's Instagrams and all the other stuff, how you talk about those issues like income inequality or whatever is going to mirror how they talk about it. Right? So does that sound, sound correct? Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about two different things because you say it happens at a cultural societal level of like just reaching out to people, speaking individually, all right? So that's these folks. That's these folks right here, okay? So let's draw a distinction between these guys and these guys. There are people here who will have a relational investment and who will probably respond better to some of those things than obviously than these would. Like if you tweet it at Don Lemon and say, hey, the way you word this stuff, I think is really destructive. Um, you know, I'd ask you to please reconsider your rhetoric. You know, probably not gonna get a lot of uh, traction with that, right? Whereas, you know, reaching out to your friend and going, hey man, you know, just something to think about. Like, I care about you, I care about this relationship. So let's talk about it. That's this down here, right? That's just the majority of average, average folks. That's gonna gain some traction. So what I'd like to, to maybe next think about is, and this leads to the, the second part is, how effective do you think that is for the, for the average people, all right? So if we say we can't really get to them, all right? How effective do you think that is, well, let's just start there. How effective do you think it will be uh, if, if that was the approach? And again, specifically is people who are not within that kind of woke, you know, orthodoxy thing, reaching out to those within it and saying, hey, just so you know, this is the relational impact that this is having. Um, how effective do you think that will be? Because you're talking about how it has to change from within. Well, change, necessity is the mother of all invention. Invention is change. So what would necessitate that change on this, the regular base level? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, it would be difficult, long, and tedious to do it with every individual because that majority block is significantly bigger than the, the thought leader block. Um, but you definitely have more power with the, the smaller people who are willing to listen to you. Yeah, if you tweet something at Don Lemon, you're more likely to get pushed back from a majority of his supporters than you are to ever talk to Don Lemon. You know, it's, yep. not, it's not the greatest way to communicate. And that's why those systems aren't, aren't the greatest. Because even looking at the diagram you put up there, I'm thinking of a, more of a corporate model where your managers talk to the people below them. And if it's only the managers dictating to the people below them, that's an awful, awful system that never works. It's always information needs to flow upward in order for the managers to make the right decisions. So right now, if you're, you're having your thought leaders dictate down to the majority, you know, that's, that's the worst way to pass along information because you're just going to have it viewed through their eyes. So if yep. you as a person can go to that majority directly and start to convince some of them to, to shift their thoughts or at least think about things more critically, you don't have to change their beliefs or ideology. You know, that's normally not what I try to do. I just try to say, hey, this is not the boogeyman you're going up against. They're not evil people. You know, if you can start to convince them, you will start to influence the, what you consider the thought leaders. And you're, you're going to have that uh, drive of information upward instead of downward to the majority. Yeah, maybe. I think theoretically, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So one thing I've been thinking about is let's go back to that asymmetrical relationship between criticisms. Well, what happens? Let's say I am a, a person who's kind of, you know, on the left and I, you know, I'll just say this stuff or I'll, you know, share, retweet, whatever. And someone reaches out to me and says, Hey, and they tell me that. And I might even be the type of person who is prone to go, Oh, yeah, I can see that. So there's another level of, okay, but you have now become aware of the treatment that people who disagree receive. So you are now faced with the conundrum of, I can either just kind of stop doing what I'm doing, okay, and just, which is another way of just kind of staying silent. I can keep doing what I'm doing, or I can speak out, okay? And to speak out would mean to face the exact same kind of treatment that I just realized that my friend has been receiving and that I know that I've been, like, I, in other words, I know that, like you said, the knives are going to come out, right? So what's the incentive structure there? Like, again, how likely is that to enter in this cultural milieu with that Overton window asymmetry, how likely is that to be a long-term effective strategy for actually getting people to push back? Cause just going into neutral isn't, isn't good enough. You have to push back and say, no, no, I'm not going to participate in this type of divisive rhetoric. Like how strong, if you were to give it a rating is the incentive structure for the average person to push back against that? Um, I would say it really depends on the average person, you know, who is uh, using these Overton windows. You can really say it's the woke people, but really it's how the media helps shift it, right? The thought leaders help shift it. So now the average person sees it with the same light, even though they might not believe the same things. They now see that if you defend the police, you might be racist. You know, now the average person yep. is starting to believe that more and more. So really you got to push back against first that Overton window and then try to get toward the ideology part of it. Um, but you know, the, the incentive there, it's not, not very large, not right now, at least. Yeah, I agree. So here's the second part I'm thinking of, and I know this is probably going to be, this already is probably like really clunky and hopefully people are still watching. I don't know, but this is just my stream of consciousness and you going, uh, to, and actually doing really well, keeping up with my crazy thoughts. So kudos to you. 
But so the next thing I'm thinking about is, all right, so we have this asymmetry. We have a really bad incentive structure for getting people to move against it. And I think as you really uh, insightfully pointed out that there has been a shift in terms of who's establishing the hierarchy and who's pointing out the corruption of the hierarchy. I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, so we have all of this going on. Okay. And so here's the thing that I'm, the next thing that I'm thinking about, and this is kind of the part two question. When you look at, so I've been on a bit of a, a news, like hiatus, media hiatus. I get, I'm just a little bit overwhelmed with how frustrating it is. So I'm just, I'm tuning out for a little while. But when you look at the, whether it's the headlines uh, or the tweets or the narratives, okay. What would you say is the, if you had to, I'm not necessarily looking for anything here, but if you had to describe the atmosphere for discourse right now with some of these really hot button issues, and really you could say over the past couple of years, the atmosphere for discourse, um, how would you describe it? What is it like to have like productive conversations or to pursue productive conversations with people you disagree with? Like, right now what is that like how would you describe it even though we have these social media structures that should make it easier than ever it, it, it you got to do a lot of work to do it and what i found is when i talk to people whom i disagree with in person so as long as it's not at some sort of rally or something like that where they're surrounded kind of by the rhetoric and they feel like they need to defend it you can disarm them by having a one-on-one -on -one conversation i find it to be extremely easy to have that discourse and although, you know, lately you really can't be on a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you know, because of the you know, stay at home thing. But, um, and, and I think that actually is a huge part as to why this, this uh, recent protests and riots have blown up is because people have been in their homes just waiting to do something. And now they have this activity to do. So they're going to go all out. I think that's why it was so big, but, or in part it was so big, but if you can get in front of a person face to face, it's actually pretty easy but you got to work to do it. And when we have these systems like Twitter and Facebook, there's not a big incentive to do that work when you can just sit down at a computer or on your phone and do it virtually, but it, it never actually really works out. So in, in terms of discourse on social media, it is extremely difficult unless you find the right system. And I know you might put this up on ThinkSpot, but there are other people, you know, social media alternatives that do really good at discourse generating kind of the way they have it set up. But, you know, most of these systems like Twitter and Facebook, these are not set up to have a productive discourse. So it is extremely difficult unless you put in the work. If you put in the work, you can do it. But most people don't want to put in the work there. Yeah. I've, I've actually had I, I, some of the most pleasant surprises in the past like week or two have been interactions really more over like private messaging with people that I know that we have strong disagreements. And I've had a couple of these where it has been so cordial and so like just refreshing, like the most refreshing thing ever. Like it makes me want to cry of how refreshing it is, but I think they're few and far between. Um, and so the reason why I asked that is because if we go back to this, where the thought leaders are kind of setting the stage for how we talk, how the majority average person thinks, and discusses these things. If you look at like how is AOC or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar or Jerry Nadler or Nancy Pelosi or Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper or any of the or just the outlets, okay, just the outlets. 
the way they're talking about this stuff, all right, and this is kind of the really the thing that I'm getting at and why I think discussing that asymmetry matters is I'm worried that we're thinking about this the wrong way. And what I mean is, is if you look at how they're discussing those things, I think that you have to take a second to ask, your que ask a question about goals. And so what I mean is, is that you can, you can say, if, if my goal, if my goal was this, this is probably how I do it. Okay. So if my goal was to build bridges with people I disagree with, I would probably take this general kind of, of tactic. You know, I, I wrote or I, pub, I, I put up a thing that was at the, um, it was a Yale University address given a couple of years ago. And, and he talked about Polly Murray, who was a civil rights advocate. And, and she said, you know, whenever my brothers try to draw a circle to exclude me, I draw a bigger circle to include them. That's another thing I know we've talked about, you know, Jonathan Haidt. And he, he writes about that in The Coddling the American Mind with him and Greg Lukianoff. And so how, if your goal was to say, hey, look, I want to accomplish this thing, police reform, all right, to use something contemporary. Um, my goal, I would, you would, and, and I wanted to accomplish this, and I wanted to build as much support for it as possible. I'm going to try and draw a really big circle and try to find common ground with all of the relative or the relevant in interests, right? And so that would be where my starting place is how can I reach out and try to find some commonality and, you know, and establish a dialogue with people, right? That would be my goal. So an example would be, you know, if you look at how things were maybe towards the end of the Cold War and, you know, we're holding these summits, we're doing these different things. And, you know, we might give this kind of impassioned speech here, this kind of impassioned speech here, but we're talking to each other and trying to find some kind of common ground, okay? So if that's the goal, then you could look and say, well, how, it, how are the people I disagree with conducting their kind of campaign for change? Are they trying to find common ground? Are they trying to build bridges? Are they trying to reach out and establish some commonality and sense of humanity and trying to, to sell what, they're, what they wanna accomplish? And the other question you could ask is, okay, well, if I wanted, if I didn't care about finding common ground, if I didn't care about like establishing some type of bridge between me and those I disagree with and finding commonality and bringing them on board and, you know, building a, a coalition, you know, so to speak, right? If I didn't care about that, well, how would I do it? Well, I would probably make no overtures to find any common ground. I would probably say things that are so incredibly inflammatory about that side that it makes it very obvious that this is a zero sum thing, that this is not a, a bridge building exercise, but this is a scorched earth exercise. And so the reason why I, I talk about the overstream window and the asymmetry there and the, the social structures is because I think there might be some people here who might after, uh, like you said, putting that work in, might be interested in building some kind of common ground and might be, and, you know, and reevaluating the way they've handled things socially and relationally. I don't think there's anyone up here, <laughs> I don't think there's anyone up here who has any interest in that. And they are the ones who are driving the conversation. Um, and so that's what, that's what I think is worth talking about is I think that it's a mistake 
And I, and I really, one of the reasons why I wanted your like just initial impressions without giving any primer is I think it's a mistake to assume that everyone down here is not interested in building common ground. Like I said, I've had experiences to the contrary lately. They've been so pleasantly surprising, so encouraging to my heart. Okay. And, and so I think that the average person, I think you can make some progress. At the same time, I think the, the thought leaders who are driving the conversation, I'm not sure. So, so I, first I want to say what I think their goals are and that, which is what I just did. And I, and you, we can get in here in a minute to what I think, what their goals might be. Um, I don't think their goals are building a coalition are building bridges are establishing common ground and drawing the circle to include as many people as possible. Um, and so I think it's a mistake to assume, like if you think, so there's a, this last thing I'll say, sorry, I know I, I can get verbose on this stuff. So I was, uh, have you uh, ever read Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, Rich Voss? No. Chris Voss? Uh, I think Rich Voss is a comedian. Um, Chris Voss, he's a, he's a negotiator and he was like the U.S. government's international, like their go-to hostage negotiator. And one of the things he talks about is how like reading, like if you get so in your head of thinking that you understand what is taking place, like you have a framework for understanding, understanding a dynamic, you will miss things that will disprove that dynamic. And so you have to be willing to look at everything with fresh eyes. And so he gives the example of how there was this one hostage situation where, you know, they just treated it like any other hostage situation. And it turns out the guy was just wanting to do suicide by cop. And so he killed some hostages and then, and they killed him. And he says, you can look back now on his rhetoric and go, Oh, he was after something entirely different. But because we were so tunnel visioned on assuming that this was going to go into our, our model of how we think these things work, Nassim Taleb calls it the ludic fallacy. And so whenever you do that, like you will miss things and you might be like using a set of criteria and like priors to try and understand and respond to a situation that isn't actually the situation you're in. And so I think that we might be making the mistake of thinking about like how, like the dynamics of the very conversation itself at the highest level by thinking that, that on some level that there are people who are driving this conversation that are interested in building common commonality. I'm not saying it's the average person. Okay. I'm not demonizing your friends, my friends, anyone like that. Okay. So be very clear. But I think that the people who are driving the conversation, I'm not convinced that they're interested in drawing a big circle and bringing in as many people as possible so much as they are with just scorched earth on all opposition. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, I definitely agree with you on that. And one of the thoughts that popped up in my head as you were um, explaining your thoughts was the, the, revol the evolution of, of social media, I don't think has really harmed the people. I think it just manifested or, or it is amplifying the flaws in our culture. You know, I don't think social media has created flaws. I think it's amplifying them. But the thing is with people like, let's use Don Lemon for an example. You know, he'd be considered one of our thought leaders, which is uh, oxymoronic to me, but you know, Scary. he's there, whatever. Um, I, I don't think he sees himself as a journalist. I don't think he, he sees himself as, as he really would see himself, not to describe himself to you, but I think he sees himself as Don Lemon on Twitter. And he's Don Lemon on Twitter with whatever mm. 1 million Twitter followers. And he says on TV, whatever is best for that group. And kind of what we talked about before, you know, what I said 
I can talk to people. I have great discourse when I can get them in person and not in a large group. I think the same exact thing, basically, you just said. If you're able to talk to them in a one-on-one message, then then they, they're disarming their talking points for the group they believe they need to defend. And that's why you're having that productive conversation. And the same thing goes in one-on-one. What I think is the smaller the groups get, you now have a better chance of them trying to reach across the aisle and say, all right, let, let me just see what we have in common here. But when you are in these large groups, say Republican and Democrat, there's these massive groups here. There, there's no interest there in, in bridging, you know, what can we find in common there? It's I'm going to defend my group. I'm going to defend my group. And the same thing goes, goes with people like Don Lemon. They, have their, they need to speak for their Twitter following. They don't want to reach across the aisle. They just want to do what's best for their Twitter following, their personality, their brand. You know, I, I think those guys, they don't even care about CNN. They care about their personal brand. And then the, the smaller reporter at CNN is starting to care about CNN's brand. But again, it's this large group they feel they need to defend. When you can get them disarmed and down to the individual, that is when you can talk to them. That's when you can start bridging, you know, the gap and seeing what do we have in common. But I don't think there is a real incentive for the thought leaders to do that. You know, they want to do what's best for their brand. They want to dig into their ideology a lot more and not try to find this common ground. At least most of them. There's some people who can. But, you know, we, we see people like, you know, Ben Shapiro has a Sunday special. He brings on leftists on there to talk with them and tries to bridge that gap. But you can even see with him, you know, he's going to dig in a little bit during his show. But when you can get to that individual and get them disarmed and not in that group, that's when you can reach across the aisle. So I think the individual might have an interest in it, but the larger the group gets, normally the less interested they are at, at reaching across the aisle. So I agree. So here's, here's why, I, why I ask, okay, is that, you know, there's an old saying, you don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight, all right? And as I even say that out loud, I'm not sure I even like that metaphor as framing this. But my point is, is that you want, for whatever situation you're in, you don't want to have the wrong tools. You don't want to use the wrong tools. You don't want to use the wrong framing for it, right? And so if their goal isn't, okay, and again, the, the thought, the leaders are the ones who are influencing how the average person does it. And I think it's, and again, I think it's important to note that this is a subconscious, I call it, you know, kind of the back of mind. Um, subroutines is what I think about is like right now zoom is running on my computer right that is a front-facing program I can see zoom running but there's another I'm, if I, there are ways to open it up where I can see all the lines of code running and that's the sub that's the things that are running in the background and so I think for a lot of people the way that they think about disagreement itself um, and a lot of these hot button issues is a, is a back of mind subroutine kind of thing in terms of the framing. And again, what I mean is, well, if you don't agree with this, you're just a racist. Or if you don't agree with this, you're just evil or you're just greedy or just whatever thing, right? Fascist. Um, or honestly, on the right, I don't think it's as prevalent, but I think it's worth saying, you know, if you, that's just a, 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 you're a communist or a socialist. Like, I think that the right abusing the word socialist is as bad as the left abusing the word fascist and Nazi because it loses meaning. Like, and especially for the right to do it because guess what? There are actual people who meet that criteria and you don't want to like lose the potency there. So, but my, but my point is, is that I think that that's the, the back of mind subroutines that are driving that response. There's this uh, book that I'm just at the end of called The Power of Habit, super interesting book, highly recommend it. And he talks about how like probably as much as 40% of our 
average day, just our day, is just subconscious, just habit. You're just operating out of habit. Um, and like that's a huge percentage. And so I think that so much of how we respond to things um, is habit, is these subconscious heuristics like Kahneman writes about. Have you gotten into that book yet, man? No, I'm in five different books right now. And I, I'm actually I, really close to, except for one, I'm very close to finishing all of them. And now I just got a bunch of Karl Marx books in. But, but the, I get, oh, I get what you're getting at. So what I would call it is like an autonomous motor function where I'm walking up the steps. I'm not thinking about walking up the steps yep. and you know, yep. normally exactly. I can do it successfully. And, but it's like, you know, seeing, you know, someone says something, it's like, Oh, racist, like autonomous. Like I didn't think about it. Yeah. I didn't have to. My fingers just, just did generates. it. And it's gone. Yeah. It and that generates. becomes a problem. And you, as you said, it's, it's a problem for the right. It's a problem for the left. It's a human problem, but totally. yeah, we need to make sure we're not abusing it. So what are the five? What are you, what are you in? I want to hear what, what are you, what are you in right now? Five. So I have, I'm still Don't Burn This Book by uh, Dave Rubin. Mm -hmm. um, I am in the third volume of The Gulag Archipelago. Oh, I nice. am very close to being done with Coddling of the American Mind. That one I've been popping in and out of. That's kind of my go-to because whenever I read Jonathan Haidt, I can only read like three pages and then I have to sit on it for a while. To think about. I can't, I can't like just blow through that book. Um, let's see. I'm doing the Federalist Papers. Um, that one I haven't, I haven't gone back to in a while. I'm on somewhere in the thirties, I believe. Uh, and then another one, there's a fiction book I have that I'm trying to read through that I, I, I don't remember now. 50 Might Shades been, uh, Free. Um, well, what's the fourth one? I'm trying to figure that one out. It's a That's knock. That's like a Japanese one. version. No, it's kidding. Uh, I think it might be another kingdom by, um, by Andrew uh, Clavin, yeah, very cool, very cool. No, I do it on the same way. I I, I do books at this at the same time. I totally get it. So either way, but my point is that he, they write about heuristics and how we have these kind of these go-to things. So again, you know, I kind of use the example of if someone comes and knocks on your door and they're dressed a certain way, and you kind of look out the window and you're like, oh, this is a you know whatever, you know, it could be uh, so, fr someone from some religious group that I'm not super interested in what they have to say. And so you've already primed yourself of like, I don't have to listen to this person. Right. And so that's all I'm saying is I think that we have the average person has all these heuristics and default responses and subroutines that are just become normal. Like you said, without thinking about it, like walking up the steps because of the thought leaders just disseminating constant vitriol, and if they're not interested in building bridges, if they're not interested in finding common ground, then it's going to come across that way. And so back to what I was saying about having the right tools for the job is I, is I think it's worth considering and worth spending some time marinating in, okay, well, if the job is to heal or the job is to find common ground, what do you do when the other side, at least some of them, okay, and again, I'm not saying consciously, but subconsciously has been primed to be 0% interested in it. And, and actually maybe this is more important to ask, well, what are they interested in? And so I would posit, all right, cause I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I think first is I really think, have, uh, have you ever gotten into any of Stephen Hicks stuff on postmodernism? I've read some of the stuff he's posted on ThinkSpot, but nothing other than Dude, that. That guy's awesome. So he, and, and, and Jordan Peterson talks about this also but about how once you have like completely evacuated the space of objective reality and like basically higher order values outside of ourselves, 
then there's not really anything to pursue other than power. That's a Foucault thing. And so like what I'm kind of toying with and thinking about, and I really don't like it because it makes me really, really pessimistic and I'm already super pessimistic and cynical is, well, what do we do if the people who are driving the conversation and influencing a lot of people we care about, if they're, if their primary interest isn't building bridges, again, look at, if, if I was interested in building a coalition and building bridges, what would I say? How can we establish police reforms? What I wouldn't say is, let's get rid of the police. That's insane, okay? It just is, I'm sorry. Um, but you wouldn't say that if you're interested in building a common ground with, with someone. And so what do we do if the, if the people who are influencing and who are doing that are more interested in everything is okay as long as it is in the pursuit of power? And the way they package that for these folks, the way they package it is it's the pursuit of justice. It's the pursuit of virtue. It's the pursuit of morality. It's the pursuit of equality. But really what it is for those at the top, this is what Eric Hoffer writes about, about those who actually enact the revolution are not the ones who wind up in power afterwards. And so because the, the, the other folks, really, it's just, yeah, this is the virtuous thing, but it's about the pursuit of power. And so we can have this asymmetry in dialogue because we're not interested in what you have to say. We were interested in silencing you and making you appear as evil as possible um, in, in order to pursue those means. And so that's kind of the thing I've been marinating in. And I don't really know what to do about that. So I, what's cool is that whenever I brought up the issue of the Overton window, like you immediately went to exactly the stuff that I was thinking about. I'm like, yes, okay, cool. And so, but that asymmetry matters. It matters in how we subconsciously view each other. It matters, matters in how we talk about things. It matters in how open we are to the other side's perspective. And so, it, and it matters if our, in our uh, willingness to speak out or and express dissent from our own side. It matters. And so, like, why would that asymmetry exist? Why would the, the type of rhetoric exist that is like the go-to, the norm right now, um, if the interest wasn't just power and squashing out all dissent. And what do we do about that? What do we do about that if it's just about power? And like, and are we bringing the raw, are we bringing a knife to a gunfight? Again, I'm not saying it has to be some fight to the death kind of thing. I'm just saying, are we using the wrong tools if we're thinking about it as finding common ground, you know, as opposed to, there are some people who are zero sum. Like, and how do you do if that, what do you do if that's not your goal? Like my goal isn't zero sum. My goal is common ground. But what do you do when you're talking to someone who, at least in the back of their mind, is operating with the subroutine that isn't common ground? It is zero sum in the pursuit of power. Does that make sense? I don't know. There's a lot there. No, it makes sense. Um, my strategy normally, again, for people when I'm on sort of public forum, if they're going to come out and, and just go after the character and attack me as a racist, you know, I, I give like a brief explanation as why that's wrong. What too many people do when they use the strategy of just saying, I'm not going to have this conversation. Goodbye. Is they take like a parting shot and they say, well, after you are, you know, something like that, it's just stupid. What, what you can do in this situation is just be respectful about it and say, you know, I think you're wrong. I don't appreciate being slandered like that, but you can believe what you want to believe. I don't really want to have this conversation. It's not going to be honest then shut them off. Hopefully they'll get in the back of their head and being like, well, maybe I shouldn't be, you know, having this type, type of conversation and just attacking character. But kind of what we got to before um, is, is if you can get someone, pull them aside. What I would say is shut off the tap 
that's coming from the thought leaders from above and be able to disarm them in a way that they're what do you not mean by that? be using. Go back, go, go to yeah. that. What do you mean specifically yeah. there? Well, I mean, Tease just as out. if you, if you engage someone, like say you're in a, a black lives matter protest, you go there and you want to engage with someone. If you can pull that someone aside, who's going to be armed to the teeth with the talking points from whatever group they're supporting, you can take them aside, go out for a cup of coffee, have a beer, or just go, you know, and, and away from the protest and talk to them individual to individual, shut off the tap of the, the, the energy that's coming from that group or the thought leaders or wherever that's going to be and talk to them as individual to individual. A vast majority of people are going to find common ground. They, they, they have no incentives. You know, a person who's going to be a janitor or a teacher or an engineer or, or, you know, your everyday person who's not a politician, they don't have an incentive to just dig in. Most of them don't. So most Teachers of them are going to talk to you. Because of the unions, oh, yeah. but I understand. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, yeah, they're not sponsoring the show. Uh, but yeah, if, if you can find just a way to talk to them person to person, I mean, even people in a teacher's union, unless they're really involved with the union, might not, you know, take the obviously going to be pro-union stance. But normally on a lot of other things, you might be able to find some common ground with them. But like I'm saying, if you can shut off the tap to the energy of wherever group they're in, or, you know, if they, they bring up an obvious talking point that was on CNN that evening from Don Lemon, you kind of just say, you know, I don't want to talk about the talking point. Maybe you're right there, but let's dig into it. Let's find the nuance. Because the thing about talking points is there's no nuance. There's no, there's no substance behind a talking point. It is just the point. It's a surface to shallow argument to make a point as long as you're not thinking that hard. If you can engage with them and pull them out and, and the right place, to, the wrong place to do it's going to be in the comment section on Facebook or on Twitter. So on Twitter, it's kind of hard to do because they're more anonymous. But, you know, on Facebook, what I'll do with my friends, I'll pull them aside on a, on a private message and say, hey, what's going on? You know, if you're going to attack my character, let's try not to do that. Let's show respect for each other and then continue that conversation off the public forum and talk to them as an individual. Because in, as individuals, you know, the lucky thing about most people in America is we're built in with these guiding principles. So even the farthest, farthest leftist normally, uh, maybe it's not right anymore, but you know, your, your traditional liberal is going to be considered a, a conservative in Europe, you know, because they don't have the same guiding principles we have. And, you know, they, they believe more in Europe, you know, there, there is no such thing as free speech. They kind of say they do, but it's not really enshrined in their constitutions. It's, it's something really unique to America. And when you're born here, normally you can, you, you feel it. It's, it's something that's built more intuitively into you. So I think they're willing to listen more in, at, at some point or at least have the, the guiding principle to at least listen to you and not, uh, you know, call you a Nazi when you're in a one-on-one conversation. I don't think most people do that. If they're disarmed, you shut off the tap from the thought leaders and you get them away from the group that's going to try to feed them the energy to give them those talking points. I think it's really the best, best way you can do it. It's not always easy. Like again, on Twitter, you're not really going to get that opportunity unless you can private message them on the side, but uh, in person, it's really useful. And, you know, on Facebook, the personal friend, you know, I, I don't suggest engaging uh, in the a back and forth in the comment section with a, a friend or family on Facebook, you know, do the private message thing. And normally it'll dis, disarm any talking points you don't want to talk about. And you'll actually get your point across. I think that's, uh, there's a lot of stuff there that I agree with. There's a lot of stuff I think is really naive, but I hope is true. Um, so we got, we got a little bit of time left here because we're coming up on the hour and a half mark. So Kevin, go ahead and give me, so, well, you can do anything. You don't have to answer this question, but what's your prediction? So again, I think about our ability to exist together as, you know, to agree to disagree. I have a piece that I started in November, actually, that's called, you know, a, you know, desiring dissent. I wish we could agree to disagree is, is the premise of it. 
but we can't even do that. Um, so what is your prediction for our ability to exist among people that we disagree with and have some type of social fabric uh, going forward? Like, in other words, so everything you're saying, like, if you do this, it could probably yield positive results. I agree with a decent amount of that. So my question is, if you take out like the hypothetical formula for how some people can reach out to some other people and you just look at, okay, where do you think we're heading in terms of our social cohesion? Like make a prediction about where, where we're heading as a society in terms of our mutual respect and ability to agree to disagree. You know, I heard someone say that, that this was, I'm trying to remember who this was a few days ago. Um, and my whiskey's almost gone, so that's probably uh, affecting my memory, uh, my uh, my faculties there. It's but also our timer. That, that's true. Um, but they were talking about how um, America is a social, a failed social experiment. And my thought is, is I think that there actually might be some merit to that, at least in terms of like what happens if you don't have any like if you're like if you have people who are willing to just like agree to disagree and like kind of live and let live and there's no mechanism for like restraining the people who are insane and it's like yeah go ahead like go nuts like if you have people who their their default is like i just leave me alone and other people who's like i'm gonna be really up here like you're gonna keep moving to that direction in terms of like the government's involvement in your life so I think there might be some, some merit to that, but that's, that's a whole nother thing. But my point is, is that make a prediction about the social trajectory of like how we as a society, so this group, so where this group is going um, based mm -hmm. on what you see now, make, make a prediction yeah. or, or answer an entirely so, different thing or say something else and ignore it entirely. I don't care. It's fine. Yeah. So I saw this good movie the other day and now um, uh, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I don't know. I haven't watched a movie in a long time, actually. Um, I, I think it's going to get worse. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the next, right? Um, but I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, that's always the, the popular answer to this question. It's only because we're going up to November. Uh, I don't obviously see it any getting any better before then. Uh, and I don't even know what possible outcome in November would make it uh, settle down more, you know. Trump gets elected, I think you're going to have a very, very large spike in divisiveness uh, just surrounding the election. You know, if, if Biden were to win, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we'll tamper down. I don't know what the response from the right is going to be. I hope it doesn't, you know, come back with uh, the Russians helped him or some other stupid, uh, uh, you know, accountability remover um, for just running a bad candidate or having a bad campaign. But I, I think it'll get worse before it gets better. Uh, and then I think it's going to take about like a year after November. And then it, it's really going to, to, to see what, what the culture is going to push back on our politics. Cause you know, I've talked to you about before and you know, the famous Bright, Breitbart quote that, you know, um, politics is downstream from culture right now, you know, just like our thought leaders, a lot of our thought leaders are politicians and that's basically politics affecting our culture. And that's, you know, a dangerous game. You never have good results when that happens. And I would be interested to see what is the culture going to push back? you know, even our, our intellectual betters in Hollywood, like, are we starting to see that maybe, you know, actors just because they act good in a movie that we should look up to them as our intellectual betters, or should we just treat them as individuals like everyone else? You know, and I do see that, that getting pushed back a little bit more, at least from one side, obviously. 
Um, but really what does it look like with that culture pushes back, you know, and maybe that's going to create a little spike in division, but it will result, you know, in a healing process. It might, um, like I've talked to you, you know, off air before, you know, what, what happens, you know, when the Democrats lose, what do they run or who do they run next? Do they go with AOC or do they go with Tim Kaine? You know, do they go with more extreme or do they go <laughs> to the center because they don't? All right. But, um, <laughs> or someone like Tim Kaine, you know, someone toward the center, at least, you know, what are they going to do at that point? Do they? Oh, it's Hillary this? Clinton's VP running mate, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. He's the only name that popped to mind. I'm just trying to think of moderate, or somewhat moderate uh, uh, Democrats, and he's the only guy I could think of. But um, okay, sorry, I had forgotten about. It. Sorry I, about it. I I saw him um, uh, the Epstein documentary on Netflix. He was mm-hmm. a, a talking head on there, so that's why I thought of him. I haven't yeah, I haven't thought of him in a while, but just popped up in my head. Um, but, but my point is, are they going to go more extreme? Are they going to double down on the wokeness or are they going to go back to the middle? Cause they see the wokeness is not working. It's just not, it's not a sustainable energy source really, because when your ideas are based on nothing they're just surface arguments, but they don't really have any ideas behind them. There's no context to it. You know, the all shallows are clear argument. These are, they, they look good as long as you don't think too hard. You know, they're, they're not yeah. bad as long as you don't think too hard. Um, and do they realize that, you know, their time's running out in that direction and they moderate or do they double down? So, you know, the double down option, obviously, you know, our division is not getting better anytime soon because you're going to have reasonable people being like, I can't, you know, I'm a lifelong Democrat and I can't, I can't keep going this direction. So I got to push back on it. Or, you know, there's going to be that silent majority that's just not going to say anything until it finally erupts and they're going to have to be like, all right, enough is enough. I can't, I don't want my son coming home asking to wear a dress. I don't want, you know, my son or daughter coming home and, and kneeling because they have white privilege. So kneeling in front of, you know, their other classmates as if it's some sort of mea copa that's going to reverse the, the white privilege trend. You know, some of the, I think to most people, the stuff is kind of silly and they're just kind of being silent on it and don't want to speak out about it because they either don't feel informed enough or they don't, you know, want to uh, hurt someone's feelings who they know might support this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, what is that cultural pushback going to be? So I'm not really answering your question, I know, but uh, it's such a hard thing to predict because I think it depends a little bit on November and also, you know, what is the reaction to whatever outcome it is in November? Um, and that'll play a big role because you can see, and, and you're going to see this around the world because already you've seen it around the world with the, the George Floyd incident having riots in major cities all over the place in the UK and in a yep. couple cities around the world. So it, it seems like that cultural influences being exported by the United States to somewhere else. So hopefully, you know, other countries kind of take note too and be like, well, maybe we should stop this. We shouldn't start burning our cities. We should start to think for ourselves. I think that's an interesting point, especially with the, well, the idea that they, you know, whenever you say, well, maybe the Democrats will moderate. Well, they kind of, the establishment showed the largest, like establishment show of force cohesion imaginable right before super tuesday right when everyone dropped out and supported joe biden in the last like 36 hours so i think that that showed that they weren't trying to push the woke agenda but they also are still trying to push the woke agenda i think you know whenever it was still very very early you know december january i was still saying this is going to actually be about the vp because if we agree that the major candidates are biden and bernie then then it's not actually about Biden and Bernie. It's about the VP nominee. And so I think that that's kind of where it's at. 
you know, I think it's a mistake. I was listening to Ben Shapiro say yesterday, oh, come November, if people are having to decide between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and the economy's doing well, it's like, come November, people aren't going to be thinking about Joe Biden at all. They're going to be thinking about his VP nominee, and you know better, Ben, so stop saying that. So, but, but either way, you know, I think that they, the establishment has shown we're not going to do the Bernie thing. Like, as soon as he started doing well, you know, then, then it's, like you said, knives out. But they're still going to try and cater to that. And you can't cater to that. You know, you can't. Um, but it's a whole other thing. So it sounds like your prediction is we'll see. We'll see. It depends on what happens politically and, you know, how the power is to be respond to the political uh, outcomes. Is that somewhat accurate? I would say the, the opposite of that. How does the culture respond to it? Because how, how politics culture responds respond? to it doesn't matter at all. Yeah, yeah. It's the culture yeah. that's going to have to okay. determine. Fair enough. Yeah, whenever you're talking about the Democrats, that's why I made me think. But yes, yes, yeah. how the culture – but how the culture responds because of how tapped into our brains all these people are. Like think about it like this. You know, let's say – when's the election? November 5th, right? So November 6th, I don't think the culture is going to have an independent thought. I think there's going to be a lot of conservatives that are going to go, what did Ben Shapiro say about this? There's going to be a lot of people on the left who are going, what did Rachel Maddow and what did uh, you know, Chris Cuomo say about this? And that will influence where the culture is, like unequivocally. Like that's the problem, I think. That, that's the problem. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're controlled by that. So that's, that's a whole other thing. Okay, so last question, last question for you. Um, if you had to say one step that the average person could take who is sick of the hate and of the vitriol and of the divisiveness to try and build a bridge, even if it's unpopular, what, what advice would you give them to do that? Well, it's going to definitely come from, uh, you, you really have two options here. You either sit down and don't say anything. You stop contributing to the, the political divisiveness and cultural divisive, divisiveness we see today. Uh, and you know, I think that's an option we've taken before and, and normally doesn't yield the best results. If you're going to just step out, you know, not everyone's going to step out, just the bad people are going to be left in. So I think you need to, to put your thoughts out there, but you can do it in a way that is like, Hey, I support, you can, you can put a label. I don't really like black lives matter. The, the organization, I like the idea, but not the organization, but I know a lot yep. of people have been using that as a bridge because all the, like, I, I personally know some people who are, who are in the movement and they're good people. You know, even if the leadership of that that uh, organization might not be that, I mean, don't go on their website if you want to maintain that it's a good group kind of uh, thought. But yeah, you know, they're using it as a stepping stone to to at least build a bridge to the community and, and say, you know, we hear your pain. We don't agree that that's the source that you think it's coming from is really the cause of the problem. But you know, we're going to hear you out at least, and you know, just kind of lending a hand to that community and and becoming you know friendly with them because I did see that a little bit on social media at least and you know my my friendly circles that you know people were were less vitriolic and then after a couple of days then then it started to ramp back up but um to put your opinion out there and just be open to say hey this is this is what I believe I don't think it's crazy I don't, I don't think it's racist but I would love to have a conversation with more people about politics because I think one of the worst advice that we've we've given ourselves in the last couple of years is don't talk about two things. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. And the religion thing, I, I almost see, you know, why that would be a thing because I don't want, you know, our kids teaching each other about religion. Um, but 
politics, politics is a study of people, study of ourselves. It shouldn't be something that's discouraged to talk about uh, in, in our everyday discourse. So I, I normally advise people to say, hey, talk about politics. You just got to do it in a friendly manner, keep it respectful and let people know your opinions. Because if someone really, really respects you and you give them an opinion and say, I'm willing to change it, you know, that's a big thing. If you're willing to change your opinion and you're not going to just stick and, and hold your ground like a lot of the talking heads do. Um, and you're open to the conversation, normally that'll kind of yield a better, a healthier conversation. So, uh, you know, to me, you can put a political post out there and say, hey, let's talk and begin the conversation. If you see the conversation start to turn corrupt in the, the uh, you know, the comment section, you know, email them on the side, uh, message them on the side, you know, just talk to them as an individual. Normally that'll, that'll shut down their defenses. Yep. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, I have a policy that I do on when it comes to social media stuff where, you know, first I assume that whoever I'm talking to has good intentions, Absolutely. but the minute it seems like it's becoming toxic, whatever my final thought is, and I try to make it about the ideas or the situation, not about the person, but whatever my final thought is, is, hey, you know, this is what I think, but, you know, I, I just don't think like this format is the best for these kinds of product conversations to be productive. And so I'm not going to respond to anything anyone says on here, but absolutely feel free to message me if you'd like to continue this conversation further, um, you know, in good faith, you know, I, I just don't want to, I don't want this to devolve into something that's a waste of time and counterproductive. So just, just, you know, this is my thoughts. This is more about the medium than it is the relationship. Feel free to message me. Uh, the other thing that I, that I would say is I, I think, back to that idea of like assuming that that people have the best, the best intentions. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, you know, I get really, really frustrated and really disheartened at the way people treat each other just generally um, if they disagree. And so I was thinking about like, what, what, what do I do, if, you know, with someone who disagrees with me, but it's also like coming from a really emotional place and it's really, you know, maybe hurting or upset or whatever. So I started thinking about the nature of disagreement and thinking about that. I think it's probably a false dichotomy to think that you have to agree or disagree with your thoughts, right? So say, well, if I don't agree, then I can disagree and I have to tell them why. I think that's a rear facing um, subroutine that I have been running for a while. So I was thinking about that of like, well, what does it look like to just be an immovable object and say, yeah, I don't agree with that. Um, I have reasons why. If you're interested in those reasons, I will gladly share them with you in a context that would be conducive for, you know, some more interpersonal type of relationship building. Um, but I'm not sure it's even appropriate or useful for me to share why I disagree, to share why I think that that's wrong right now. Um, so I'm going to leave the door open for you to, you know, come and inquire if you're interested in changing your mind, like you said about like open to being, having your mind cha changed and having your opinions, um, you know, uh, altered, but at the same time, not giving any kind of pushback. I think that, that it's a false dichotomy to say I have to agree or disagree with, you know, whereas I could just, we can just disagree and say, yeah, I, I don't agree with that. Let me know if you want to talk about why, um, is another way of maybe disarming people. Cause you know, don't you think like that's part of, you know, the thing is that we disagree with, like I'm going to disagree and here's why, as opposed to like, yeah, I don't think so. And if you want to talk about it, we can, 
know, oh, yeah. no, it, I, I'm the exact opposite. When I disagree, I have to list out the top 100 reasons why. And, exactly. uh, you know, it, it puts off half the people because they don't want to read that much or, you know, you right. get into a very heated battle. So I think that's actually an excellent strategy. You will have the occasional person say, you're not listing why you don't disagree because you have no reason why you have no stat, you know, stacks or facts to, to back it up. Yeah. So you might get a couple. And of they guys. would not listen even if you did like that oh, kind of 100%. person yeah, yeah. would not. But listen people might be, did. might be baiting you into a political uh, discussion. That's not going to be in good faith, but yeah, I think that's an awesome way to open up and really you start the tone of the conversation because if the tone already yeah. starts with a very divisive post, it's not going to get any better. You know, that's just the way it starts. So uh, yeah, if you set the tone for the conversation, that's a great way to do it. So let's, so to kind of bring this to a close, kind of my, my final thoughts, and then I'll leave you with the final word here is, you know, so we've talked about how there's a bit of an asymmetry in the direction in which criticisms constructive or otherwise can flow and how there is a certain group of people that might actually be in the way, way, way minority in terms of the perspective. And I'm, talking specifically about maybe the far left progressive kind of idea of dismantle everything and burn it all to the ground and how they can say anything in the direction of those they disagree with, but those who disagree with them can't really say anything. Um, and what that leads to is a bit of a sense of frustration and there is a, we, we get it to an impasse societally where like, as you pointed out again, I think very insightfully that, you know, there is a hierarchy being established and there is no one who's allowed to point out any corruptions in the hierarchy. And that's a problem. You can't silence the people who kind of keep you in check, whether it's the left or the right. I don't care. You can't, if you're the right and you're in power, you can't silence the left. If you're the left and you're in power, you can't silence the right. Um, and so I, I think that's a, that's a really good insight. But, and, and part of that asymmetry includes a continual wear on the social fabric of how we treat each other and the best thing we can do to prevent the you know like you said inappropriately whether it's andrew breitbart's quote i think actually ravi zacharias um rest his soul who was on dave's show not that long ago he said and actually i think it was whenever ben interviewed him a while back wasn't that long ago also um he said politicians don't create culture culture creates politicians which is another way of of framing that. Um, but I think that by us as the, the people on the ground, you know, not the thought leaders, not the Chris Cuomo's or the um, Tucker Carlson's or whoever, you know, saying, look, I'm going to be respectful of those I disagree with. And those who are on the other side of that asymmetry, not just sitting and fuming about it, by the way, you can't do anything about it. So you have to just do the best with what you have and treat other people with as much respect as possible, you know, that's the way we impact change. I think that whenever, you know, continually one thing I've noticed throughout this conversation is if you brought it back to the individual dialogues with people. And I think whenever you say, you know, the individual dialogues, like people are interested in listening to each other. People are interested in talking to each other. Now that doesn't mean they're all of a sudden become advocates for free speech and respect and all this other stuff, but it's a start, right? Like it's better than the alternative, which is no one's interested in any of that. And so I think that that's correct on a base level. I'm not sure that the expedience, like how fast that will work is necessarily going, when I say I'm really cynical, I'm not sure that's going to be enough to impact the culture quick enough before we completely tear each other apart, to be honest. 
but that's another conversation for another time. But I think that it's, it's base level true that by building, you know, relationships and are just operating within those relationships. Like you said, it takes work and respecting people and just being honest and open about it and restoring that human element to, to who we disagree with. You know, one of the things that like you've alluded to multiple times, Twitter and Facebook aren't the best medium is because it removes the element of humanity from people we're talking to. You know, it's just something out there in the ether as opposed to a real human being with real thoughts, real feelings, real emotions, real needs. Um, and so by reestablishing that personal connection, it reestablishes the humanity of people we disagree with. And so I think that's right. And so just kind of my final thought is, you know, as cynical as I am about where we're going, and it's incredibly cynical and getting worse every day, uh, different, maybe should have included that. But but I think you're right in saying that, like, okay, yeah, there is two windows here. Okay, what do you do with that? You know, you make the best of what you have. And what that is, is that we have to be immovable objects for principle and for respect. You know, kind of the thing I said in that video I made a while back, it was a bit of a rant. I'm really glad that I made that after I'd already spent some time screaming. So it had a lot more F words in it otherwise, but, but to be people who are willing to just, just treat others with respect and reach out and do that and not respond in kind whenever someone, you know, does demonize us just merely for disagreement. And that that's as insurmountable as that seems in closing as insurmountable as that seems, it's kind of the only way it's kind of the only way of you respecting people, me respecting people and reaching out and saying, look, we're here, you know, and it's really hard to call someone a Nazi piece of crap face to face, like you noticed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so reestablishing that humanity and, you know, it's kind of the only way and being willing to disagree with someone, you know, even when it's hard. Um, yeah. So that, that was kind of my thought and, and sorry, final thing is that in terms of having tool, the right tools for the job, that means understanding that if someone is not interested in building bridges, you don't have to sit there and keep and get in a flame war with them on the internet. That's not productive. But knowing when to disengage of saying, oh, this is one of the people who's actually just interested in power and not interested in trying to bring, like build a coalition. And so that's not a call to arms of like, I'm going to go after you even harder. Well, no, it's, it's, a, it's, really it gives you permission to disengage and say, okay, you're not interested in that. I will say my piece. I'm going to wipe the dust off my clothes and I'm going to go on to the next person who might be interested in having a productive conversation. Not because I couldn't talk to that person, but because where is it going? Where is it going? Like, you know, arguing and, you know, debate and dunking on each other is like, it's played out, man. Like we're, we're at the, the stage where trolling each other and getting in the dunks is, it's like, okay, we're past that. Cool. That's neat. But we actually have to have a productive society. So what can we do for that? Um, you know, I don't it's know like, if that makes any sense. But It's I'm like done. watching an NBA game, which is fun compared to the NBA All-Star game, which are just dunking and no one's trying. And it's just really boring to watch. So I don't like basketball, so I can identify with none of that metaphor. But awesome, I, awesome. I, I believe that you're correct. Use the Google machine. Um, you can yeah, so, my bias. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, something you spoke on before about, you know, talking to each other like human beings and having that social media interface, which is not a good intermediary to talk like human beings. You know, I always start to, whenever I see a problem, the first thing I always do, I kind of take the Jeremy Boring approach where I'm like, 
criticize your side first. Take accountability because your side is, is kind of like your kid. And, and when your kids are playing with other kids, whose kid do you scold? You scold your own kid because you, you really care. Little, little secret between parents. You care more about for your kids than you care about someone else's kids. It's a crazy thought. I know. Um, I don't know if that's in the Overton window, but we'll see. Um, but, but I think there's, there is a major failure starting a long time ago with conservatives with just taking themselves out of the culture. They, and, and I just wrote a piece, well, I wrote a piece about it a while ago, but I had a podcast on a little bit ago where if you speak to people like they're computers and they're not people, if you just use facts and statistics, which I love like that, that's always my go-to thing. And I, I'm not great at this either. And you don't go to the human, you're not compelling them on the human side of an issue you're going to lose the culture. And that's why the left has completely taken over the culture because the right is, is incapable at some points to speak to the human element of someone. You know, we can label these things, even at the latest, um, you know, protests that you, we can list out these statistics. I can, I can give them the book, you know, war on cops from Heather McDonald and say, here, look at all these things. If you're not going to compel the human element of them to understand why these should lead behavior or how behavior is kind of manifested in these outcomes. You're not speaking to the person you're speaking to the computing element. Who's just going to throw it out. And they're going to go back to that, you know, autonomous motor function of just calling you a racist and you, you know, skewing statistics to make it look like you are. So you really got to go to the human element. A lot of times it is kind of, you know, um, reaching out and offering to go to the other side, as long as they meet you in the middle, you know, there's definitely, you know, I would criticize my side and, and say they need to do a lot better at that. And we kind of removed uh, accountability from ourselves by just saying it's just the left going wild. There needs to be a good balance. And maybe at one point the balance wasn't very good on the right that caused the left to go this crazy. So, you know, I think it should start with, you know, look at what yourself and what you can do and what you can do better to, to, to remedy the situation. Um, you know, and then as far as kind of the the, the conversation happening now and that, you know, the Overton window problem, I mean, it's really identifying that and kind of, you know, shedding light on, you know, why, why is it okay for a certain group to say this, not even like a certain skin color or a certain ethnicity. It's a certain group. As long as you believe in the right direction, you can say things. And if you, you look at the other direction, you can no longer say things. So you, you got to be able to expose that a little bit to the everyday person. I think the everyday person, as long as you again, disarm them and shut that tap off from the, the, you know, uh, intellectual betters that we, we try to, to listen to and follow, um, you know, that is going to be the start and setting the tone for that conversation to be able to, to reach across the aisle and, and, and really have a productive dialogue. Because, yeah, we, we're not really doing too well at the productive dialogue, Andrew, right, um, lately. And, you know, that, that's really where it needs to start. So I think you bring up good points, especially, again, speaking to the human side um, is going to be the most important part to, to bridge this gap and start to, to heal the culture. Yeah. Well said, man. I, facts don't care about your feelings will very easily be met with my feelings. Don't care about your facts. If you're exactly. only interested in one thing. Okay. So I don't even know what we'd even title this. If, if it even gets aired, I don't know. Um, but uh, assuming that it does. So for everyone who's interested, uh, which should be everyone who's uh, watching, listening, whatever, Please check out Kevin at engineeringpolitics.com. You can check out his locals page, which is locals.com slash engineeringpolitics or dot engineeringpolitics, I think actually. It's going to be engineeringpolitics.locals.com. Uh, dot locals.com. Yes, yeah, the other way. It's the other way around. I should probably know that because I have uh, one of those things. Uh, on Twitter at engineeringpolitics and also on ThinkSpot from there at engineeringpolitics. Again, uh, 
anywhere you want to search for content. If he's there, type in engineering politics. Does that sound about right, bud? Am I? Yeah, yeah. And if you want to donate, uh, you can donate at timkane2024.net. Timkane2024.net. His his VP running mate will be Beto O'Rourke, and it will be a total failure. So that'll be great. Actually, you know, I was a big Martin O'Malley supporter uh, in the 2016 <laughs> election before Bernie and Hillary uh, pushed him out. Uh, to be totally right. honest, it's kind of a weird thing, but. Anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so that's where Kevin's at. Uh, for my stuff, check me out at Return to Reason. Follow me at My Mundane Mind on Twitter. My locals is whatever he said, uh, return to reason.locals.com, I think. Uh, at ThinkSpot at Return to Reason. On YouTube is at Return to Reason. I think actually Kevin's also on YouTube. So that's Engineering Politics on uh, YouTube as well. So you can check out any of their content, uh, any of his content, any of mine. Um, and I would strongly encourage you to do so. Kevin, you have any other thoughts before I stop recording whatever the heck this was? No. I, I mean, I think the idea of just throwing an idea or throwing something out there and not prepping for it, it should be how every conversation should really work between people and it should start in good faith. And I think that's why this conversation is so productive is there's a good faith uh, effort and and you and I are not on the same side of the political spectrum. You know, we, we, we at least come from different backgrounds and it's good to kind of share this back and forth. I mean, yeah, we don't agree on everything, but with the same guiding principles and, you know, again, that good faith effort to have a conversation, you get productive uh, dialogue like this. Well, that's very nice of you, especially coming from a Nazi right winger. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, anyway, I chopped up my right. card the other day. No longer card carrying. <laughs> okay. I think you still get the certificate for doing the class. So, all right, that's it. I'm going to stop anymore. recording. Oh, my damn, you All right. All right, I'll check you guys later. Thanks for watching. Peace.